Welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast where we'll uncover the timeless investment principles so you can escape the rat race, earn passive income and create lasting wealth. I'm Pete Wargent, investor and financial coach and I'm joined by Stephen Moriarty, private investor and the co-author of our new book, Low Rates High Returns. In each episode of this podcast, we talk about the crucial concepts around managing your own money, how to invest, when to invest and the key lessons we've learned along the way about generating passive income. The things we discuss in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Enjoy the show. G'day, Pete Wadgen here. So this is probably our most ambitious podcast series yet. Why? Because everyone in investing has an opinion and an interpretation of Warren Buffett and his investment style. If you Google Uncle Warren, you'll get 72 million results and there's no doubt that he's the king of investing. What we want to do is determine if we can distill Buffett's 80-odd years of investing into a podcast mini-series that can help you as an investor. So we'll list a few Buffettisms and we'll dissect each one in a little detail to try and extract the wisdom, what lessons can we learn, which are the important lessons. And what we can see is that many of them are on the same topics and expresses the same point in different ways. And we'll finish this series with the ultimate question, is Warren Buffett unique and can we all be a little bit more like Buffett? So join us as we discuss the Buffett philosophy, his principles of investing and what we can learn and whether we can replicate his style to build your wealth. And after all, As Buffett himself said, your best investment is in yourself and there's nothing that compares to it. So join Steve Moriarty and myself as we dissect a few Buffettisms and see what we can glean from the master. Cheers. G'day, welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast with me, Pete Wargent. I'm here with Stephen Moriarty. How's things, Steve? Good, Pete. Good, good, good. How are you? I'm really good, thanks. And this is the final episode now in our Warren Buffett mini-series. So um, I've learned quite a bit over the series. So I think it'll be good today just to do a bit of an overview or a recap to summarise what we've learned. I think there's plenty you can learn off the old fella. So um, let's run through it and see how we go, hey? Yeah, for sure. Now, we're we're recording this, full disclosure, it's it's a weekend evening and Steve's just finishing his uh, <laughs> sip of Shiraz. So I might just ramble on for a few minutes to begin with and then I'll flick over to you, Steve, for uh, some uh, Shiraz-inspired uh, yeah, comments from you. So, uh, it's, well, obviously I'm over in England, so it's the morning. I'm having a coffee. Uh, but uh, the cricket season's underway here and uh, the sun's out, so all is well with the world. So, uh, yeah, the, the club over here actually asked me, this week to, to write a, a couple of articles for them because it's 20 years since we won the league quite scarily. Interesting story. So I was a young guy who came over to Australia. I played at Eastern Suburbs and we used to play against, you know, the Manleys and the Mossmans and so on. And I met a young guy at Manly who came back to England the following season and we had a really good team. So we had um, Sir Alistair Cook, who's England's uh, biggest ever run scorer. We had a young guy from Essex called David Randall, who sadly we lost to cancer when he was a young guy. But back then, see, cricket was a huge part of our life because you had no family, no career. And, you know, cricket was just a big part of your time, your spare time, and not to mention your money. And everything just really clicked that year. I was getting runs. This guy, Jay, from 
Manley was getting all the wickets. He was a quick bowler. And we won the league that year. It's really great memory. So uh, this is where I was leading to, Steve, anyway, as you enjoy your Shiraz. So it was pretty funny because this guy, Jay, he's become a lifelong friend of mine. He was, he was a religious guy. So you can imagine, you know, we were quite young, immature men. So there's plenty of banter. And he used to wear this this wristband uh, with WWJD on it. You know, what would Jesus do? So you can imagine how we used to take the rise you know, every time he, you know, we dropped a catch and he dropped a swear word or, you know, every time he had a glass of Jack Daniels after the game, we, we'd sort of take the, the mickey and say, well, that's not very, you know, godlike or whatever. And then, of course, the South African cricket captain, Hansi Kronje, had the same same wristband and he was uh, arrested for corruption. So you can imagine we used to give him heaps about the, the hypocrisy of it. And, uh, yeah, it's a sad story because uh, one of our teammates, Dave Randall, we, we lost to cancer when he was 26. And it, it sort of causes you to ask these questions. You know, what, what is God's role in all of that, you know? And uh, anyway, it's, it's funny how life works because I ended up moving to Sydney and Jay went back to Sydney as well. He's become a lifelong friend. And I, I caught up with him last year. We went to the Clock Hotel, as usual, in Sydney and he's just moved his family to the south coast to be near his wife's uh, family near Bega. And there was, a, there was a terrible tragedy down there last year where one of his friends drowned, left behind a family. And, you know, we'd obviously already lost a close friend of ours. And, you know, now as grown adults, we can have a more mature discussion about all this stuff. And, you know, where, what is God's role in all of this stuff? And uh, don't worry, this is not a religious lecture, by the way, before you tune out. Um, but, uh, you know, his, his take on it is, well, you know, life is obviously a mystery. You don't know what's around the corner. But the whole thing about the, the wristband was you, you, you try to do the right thing and live a good life. And, you know, you follow the right path and have faith in the process. And I think, you know, now I'm a grown adult, we can have a more mature discussion than uh, we used to when we were teenagers. Yeah, so I guess, yeah, it's an interesting uh, uh, process that I've been through writing all these articles. But uh I guess leading on to what we're talking about today, uh, so we're summarising on the Warren Buffett miniseries, and clearly, you know, none of us is going to be the next Uncle Warren, but, you know, if we f have some faith in that process, you know, maybe try and be a bit more like Warren, and, and personally, I just love listening to his videos and his wisdom, and I just try and take as much away from that as I can. It's interesting what you say there, because really, when you think about it, you've you've got to have not just in investing, but even in cricket or football or anything that you sort of pursue with a, a vigour, you've got to have an overall philosophy about, you know, what your approach is or what you're aiming to do. And then you, you out of that works a process and, you know, a little bit of a plug for our course, but that's what we teach is saying to people, we'll give you an investment philosophy, then we'll give you the process, you know, which are the eight principles. What you can learn from Buffett up front is if you get a process that makes sense that's also rigorous in terms of look I've you know the evidence supports this and it's a really good way to do something then whether you want to be a fundamental investor or a technical investor or a quant investor or you know a day trader or anything like that if you've got a, a philosophy and a process, then you'll probably do all right. Um, whether you turn out to be like Warren Buffett's another matter. But I think what you're saying there is important, which is, you know, what would Jesus do? Because other people say, you know, what would Warren do? 
the implicit assumption under that is Warren Buffett has a process and so what do I do under the, the process? Because if you don't, and this is what you know, Pete, we talk about a lot, the systematic approach to investing is saying if you don't have a process, well, how the hell do you know what to do when these situations come up? Because if you haven't got any sort of rigorous evidence-based process, then basically you're just taking shots in the dark. And so that's what makes it, you know, sort of hard to succeed if you're a little bit all over the shop. Yeah, so we've as we've gone through this um, mini-series, we've talked about Buffett's characteristics and the principles that he uses, the famous four filters, which we don't need to recap on here. But as you were saying there, Steve, the, the most important thing is actually having that systematic principles-based approach. So that's why we use the eight timeless principles, the four thought principles and the four action principles, so that it's a it's a repeatable process that you can continue as you go through. Now, one of the key takeaways from this series, I think, has been the importance of um, running your own race. And um, I, I think as you, as you go through life there, there can be a trap there in trying to benchmark not not only get against uh, particular stock market indexes or whatever but in fact just in life in general because you just never really know where other people are starting out in life you know some people inherit great wealth and others don't and you know some people earn more than others and I, I think you can spend an awful lot of time trying to compare and contrast and benchmark but I think this is one of the most important Buffett principles is he doesn't spend any time really benchmarking himself against um, particular indexes he's just focusing on the process not not outperforming anything but he just uses essentially uh, kelly as an investment uh, philosophy to run his own race i mean and look at the results over time absolutely spectacular sorry to the audience if i harp on about this i might have done it last week too but the difficulty about benchmarking is, and, uh, you know, you're seeing it currently because there's a bull market. So there's a lot of people telling you how great their returns are. And I, as I said, I, best of luck to them. I don't have any problem with that. The issue is, though, if you look over the long term, most fund managers don't beat the index. Will they outperform for five years? Absolutely. But that's not the only five years that you're going to be an investor. And so, again, it's why we teach the principles because the timeless element is really important because what we know is, and as Buffett shows with this, uh, you know, buying when the markets are crashing and, and offloading stuff when the markets are high, is a, is a timeless principle. What you can see is a lot of people will succeed but, a lot of their success is not attributed to their own process or their own skill. It's attributed to the luck aspect by being caught in a bull market. So it's a little bit, if I can, you know, commit a heresy by saying that it's a little bit like the crypto market. You know, you make a lot of money, you start to think you're the one that's responsible for that rather than being sort of more rational, if I can put it that way, and say, well, I'm just being really lucky at the moment. But the hard part of doing that is actually saying to people or even saying to yourself, I've been really lucky the last five years because we just like to attribute great things to our, um, to our 
own temperament or our own IQ or whatever you want to call it, and anything bad that happens is, un, you know, is bad luck or unlucky. So I think that the difficulty with investing is always saying, are you successful? Well, yeah, for the last five years. What about the five years before that? Mm, not so successful. Okay, so over 10 years, are you successful? Well, kind of. Uh, what about 20, you know, or 30? So it's a really, really difficult part. And and to be quite honest, what you were saying before, Pete, about benchmarking against others is really right. It, you know, if you think about it, it's a really stupid thing if you do really well and then you, you know, you get the shits because someone does better. It's like, listen, are you doing all right? Yep, okay, well, that's all you need to worry about. You know, you don't need to worry about outperforming somebody else because, as you know, there's always going to be someone that's, you know, bigger, faster, richer, you know, prettier or something. So you really just want to learn to get that process or through the, you know, like our principles and run your own race and just stay, just always keep bringing yourself back to that that point. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, you're right on the crypto heresy. Let's not go there because we don't need any more. <laughs> Boost the ratings. <laughs> We don't we don't need any more hate mail than we already get. So, uh, but so no, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting point because one of the memes that uh, people put out there is you you know we don't want you to get left behind. You should get on board. You know, you know, Bitcoin will go to a million dollars and you'll regret it. But it's you know, I think it's a very um, important point, and that sometimes it, it pays to actually take a step back and just think right, where was I? five years ago where was i 10 years ago 15 years ago and if you when you actually look at it in those terms and you see how far you've come it's a it's a much smarter way than thinking oh well some other guy is you know making more returns than me this year and uh i think you know some of the things i i learn from watching uh buffett's presentations and um the investor meetings and so on but firstly try to be as rational as possible i mean uh, clearly you know buffett himself has said that you don't need a high IQ to be a successful investor and temperament is much more important than, than intelligence. Uh, obviously, you do need a, a certain level of intelligence and integrity and energy, but the, the temperament is the important thing. And uh, clearly one of the uh, – and actually, just going back to your point there on returns over five years, I mean, this is the same in every asset class, whether it's cryptocurrencies or, uh, you know, I think UK property. We had an amazing bull run from about, oh, I guess, the mid-1990s to 2005, but then absolutely nothing for, for five years. And then we had another bull run, 2012 to 2017. And then if you look at Australian property, really nothing since 2017 and only just starting to, to turn up again now. So you do find that you get these, the returns will come in in clumps and, and spurts rather than a smooth upwards trajectory. So I think trying to... Uh, be ra as rational as possible is is important and thoughtful. What about uh, Buffett's? Um, uh, so he he makes a lot of times he makes the points about how much uh, he reads and how much he yeah, he spends a lot of time just thinking and reading. I mean, it, that's obviously an important part of um, of his process. Yeah, I think so. I think it's probably you know like there's you know you read Buffett's letters, you can learn millions of things out of them. Um, because he's been writing them for, you know, 70 to 80 years, you sort of think about and you touched on what is probably the first one, which is temperament. You know, if you've got a good temperament, then you'll do well, especially in markets because 
you you are if you if you can't handle the volatility, then you know you're bound to make mistakes. And again, that gets back into well, what's my process? Because if you've got a if you've got a process and you can stick with it, it helps you with your temperament and it helps you deal with that, that volatility that comes through the market. The second part is the so the first thing is you know work on your temperament get your principles in place and as you know we talk about personality with that and you know get to understand what your triggers are and if your triggers are you know looking at the market every day we'll try and develop a process which says okay don't look at the market every day because I know that's where I make my mistakes I often say to people what you want to do is you want a broad frame and what I mean by that is saying, you know, if you lose five or ten or whatever thousand in a day, what you want to do is you want to take a step back and say, okay, I'm worth X amount of dollars. How much is that in, you know, as a percentage of my total wealth? Oh, it's 0.04. Okay, well, you know, get on with life. And I, they're the sort of little tricks that you can teach yourself to ensure that you don't make mistakes in the market. Another one, I just want to raise this point while I thought of it, Pete, when you, when you were talking before, is Buffett also, I think it was Buffett or maybe Munger said, you only need to get rich once. And it's a really, really important point because once you, and it, it ties in with our, our stuff about Kelly by saying once you've got enough money, if you avoid doing dumb things, you'll have a really pleasant life. The way most people make mistakes is doing dumb things and dumb things come usually from trying too hard when you don't really need to. So, you know, I know this doesn't apply to everybody, of course, but it, you you get to a point where you, you have enough money to say, well, if I just actually be responsible, I'll be fine. And if I do stupid things, well, I probably will lose a lot of money. And so you often find in in some cases, um, I think Victor Needoffer was one, you know, where they blow up millions of dollars. And you, I've, I have often always looked at that and gone, that must be, <laughs> I mean, it must be the worst feeling to go, I just lost, you know, $35 million. It's like, gee, that must put a bit of a dent in the budget, you know. So, um, but that's, sorry, just a bit of a side issue. But, yes, I think I, from my own experience, reading, I've been a serious reader now for probably about 35 years, reading a whole range of topics. And what Buffett said was, um, you know, this idea of compounding your knowledge. And I never really got it until a few years ago where I started to understand that the more you read and the more you thought about things, the more it came together in a coherent philosophy. From my perspective, I can read things in science and philosophy and psychology and relate them back to investing because I've now been reading about those subjects for 20 to 25 years, whereas on the way there, I'm not, I haven't got a holistic philosophy. So it's a little bit like saying, the, the eight principles we developed have come together over a, a period of time where at some stage, you know, I, I can't envisage in another five years waking up and going, oh, actually, there's another, there's actually another nine, you know, there's another one principle I need to add. I've really thought about it and you and I have talked about the eight principles a lot 
is there six? Well, maybe, but we think eight is a really, you know, the four action and four thought is pretty good. We've talked about the the trilogy, you know, being market cycles, asset allocation and rebalancing, um, but all of that has come from you and I reading. I mean, between us, if you have, a, I was thinking about this the other day. If you look at your experience and my experience, we've got your what forty three. I'm fifty. What am I? Fifty eight, fifty seven, or something. You know, we've got basically a hundred years. You know, and between us, we've probably got fifty to sixty years of thinking and experience. So, to to me, that leads to the next point, which is the part of the one that makes Warren Buffett so great is having a partner like Charlie Munger. So you can read a lot, but I find you've got to have somebody to you know to bounce ideas off and particularly somebody that's not necessarily agreeing with you all the time. You've got to have somebody that says, no, 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 think about it this way because you go, oh, okay, I'll go away and think about that. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, gosh, you've raised a few points there. So I think Buffett once said, didn't he, he said, you know, just read 500 pages a day. And he said that's how the knowledge works. It builds up and compounds. And he, as he said, anyone can do it, but he said I can guarantee you that most of you won't. And that, that is so true, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I um, went through a phase – Oh, I guess it was about 15 years ago where I was literally going to the library and I was—I was—I uh, think the librarians must have thought I was mad because I just uh, effectively sweep all of the finance and investment books off the shelves and and read them all. And you know, when you do that, you do read some crap. And um, but I, I always just took the view that you know, even with the worst books, you're going to take away something. You know, even if it's something that you think, well, that doesn't align with my thinking, or you know, you'll, you'll always come away with some useful knowledge. And I think on your point about um, having a good partner, this is a, a really interesting thing. I, I know we've uh, harped on about it before, about the idea of the Enneagram assessment and the, your personality type. But this is this is such an interesting thing. I've been doing a lot of thinking about it over recent weeks because I think you and I have a similar personality type in terms of the potential for uh, short attention spans and looking for excitement. And I, I think back... Um, when I look at my personality type and subtypes and wing types, it, it all makes perfect sense. I look back at my career, for example, and in the first year in every job, I was always really excited, you know, new things to do, new people, new pubs to go to. But then the, the, the novelty wears off and the excitement wears off. And then in the second year, you're starting to think, oh, maybe I'm due for, you know, a new challenge, you know, and then by year three, you've just... Uh, that's been the same, not just in my career. You know, we were chatting just before we came on. I lived in New Farm for a few years. Absolutely loved it when I first got there. But by year three, I was like, oh, there's got to be other places to live, you know, <laughs> next thing moving up the coast. So in terms of how this um, has an impact on investing, I think, as you mentioned, Buffett's, um, he found himself a good partner like Charlie Munger because he gives you other ideas and a second opinion and certainly in, in my case, um, Heather, who you know well, yeah, she's a very different personality type for, from me. She's less driven by excitement and the need for constant need for new experiences. She's much more of a loyalist and she's a very sort of grounded personality type. So uh, and I, I know we've mentioned before about you know her view on, you know, well, you just buy, you know, buy some farmland that produces a good four or five percent crop yield and just never sell it, you know. And whereas to me, I'm like, yeah, but that's by year two or three. I'm like, well, that's boring, <laughs> you know. Well, you, you can only change the crop so many times. But 
I think it is actually useful to have that balance between, uh, you know, my weakness is it clearly related to short attention span, the need for excitement. And as you've uh, mentioned there, that, you know, when Buffett says rule number one, don't lose money, he's not just being a smart ass. He's, he's really making an important point there that if you don't do anything stupid and you continue to compound your results, you don't need to use leverage and, and take on insane levels of risk because the results will be just fine at the end of the day regardless. Yeah, it's funny because when, you, when you're new to investing, even if you're an adult, you're really, in a sense, a child in, 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 in experience terms. You know, so you tend to sort of think, oh, I'm, I've grown up and um, I'll, I'll read books and stuff. And that's why we also talk to people in, a, in sort of a mentor way because what you find is as a young investor, what you were saying before, Pete, about, you know, you read a lot of stuff um, and we, I think I mentioned this before a few weeks ago, every sort of book you read, you go, yeah, 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 that's what I'm going to be. Yeah, I'm going to be a day trader. And then you read a book about, you know, something else and you go, yeah, 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 that's what I'm going to be. I'm going to do that. So you spend a bit of time wandering around and it's only after a while where I think you test it against reality that you then start to not, not necessarily work out what works but I think what you do is you probably do it in reverse by working out what doesn't work. So you sort of remove the stuff that you've read and go, actually, I've looked at that and it doesn't work, so therefore I'll, I'll you know, discount it out. To, to bring it back to Buffett, the amazing thing for me about Buffett is just being absolutely loyal to value investing for, you know, the, on the best part of uh, 75 to 80 years. I mean, you, you have to think anyone who remains loyal to that has to have a temperament that is just, well, you know, from like we're talking about with personalities, I look at that and go, 70 years doing the one thing, oh, my God, that's death. You know, like that's, that's awful. It wouldn't matter what it is. It would just kill me. You know, he's been able to do that because he knows himself so well. And I remember in the book, um, the snowball, when he was being asked a lot about, you know, getting involved in causes because he was wealthy, particularly through his wife Susie, who was, you know, very – Susie was obviously the extrovert and was, um, I, I suspect, a type two personality. So she was very much into giving and helping people. Warren wasn't, but what they used to always bug Warren about was to, you know, support the causes – and what Warren's idea was, was basically to say, nah, I'll give you the money. And the reason why was he sort of said, look, I'm no good at that stuff. I'm really good at making money. So I'll just make the money. And it was, you know, like when you think about it, that's quite insightful in a lot of ways, you know, where he talks about the circle of competence and all of that sort of stuff that he discovered fairly early on saying, listen, I'm just really good at making money. I'm not really that good at social stuff. A lot of his stuff, I think, has been practised and because he went to, I think when he was young, he went to a Dale Carnegie course, you know, because he wasn't that socially skilled. And so he's built that side of it up, but I still, it's still not his comfort side. I think he's still much more, I mean, you know, let's be honest, anybody who sits in an office 
and reads for six or seven hours a day is not an extrovert that's sort of like, woohoo, where's the next party? I mean, you know, that's a guy who's just like, oh, yeah, bring me a really big heap of articles. It's like, oh, geez, I bet he's fun at a dinner party. Didn't he say that? I think he said, oh, when I go to a party, I'd much rather go upstairs and read an annual report rather than actually speak to people. And uh, I can I can certainly empathise with that, depending on the party, of course. But uh, what about the um, the role of luck? Because I know we've we've t- touched on this, not actually in the Buffett series, but in other episodes. And I think, um, you know, Buffett has obviously had some good fortune, as he's, he's often pointed out himself, in terms of, uh, when he was born, the background, you know, he was born in America, educated. And, you know, we, we've said before that, you know, he, he made most of his wealth actually after the age of 50, which you often do here because wealth is a, a power law. And if you're starting with a larger bucket, then obviously the compounding effect can be greater. But but also the time in his life that, you know, he came into wealth as a, through deregulation, you know, really good time for markets from, 1982 to 2000 so I suppose what he would say is um, you know luck comes along but you just have to make the most of it and I think it's the same for all of us you know I look back on my journey you know, I was lucky to be born to parents who valued education lucky to have a good partner you know and there's this stuff that happens through life where you know you weren't necessarily banking on some good fortune but I guess the, the most important thing is when it comes along to make the most of it. Yeah, I think um, I think you're right there. If you read um, about Buffett's life, and as you said, you know he'll tell you that he's had a pretty good run. I mean, he was, you know, his, his father was a congressman, so he obviously had a very solid uh, middle class upbringing, which which I think delivers a lot of people a life that may I, I can't say is, but may have been a lot better than if you were born poor in, you know, Africa or India or something like that. And I think it's a really unsung part of our success and our, with inverted commas, by, because, I mean, you know, if you think about it, it's it's hard to sort of say to people, oh, yeah, I've just been really lucky, because, you know, because in, in some ways you can't control luck. And so you can sort of shrug your shoulders and go, yeah, 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 I've been really lucky. Um, okay, so now what does that mean? You know, does that mean I should be guilty or, you know, something like that? Like, what, I'm not as smart as I think I am? Or So I think it's a, it's a bit of a tricky one, but it's also what I, I think the important part is just simply acknowledging that you, you get lucky via those sort of external processes that you don't control and so, for example, at, at my age, at 58, even, you know, I'm a tail-end boomer, if you're about 60 or 65, you, you, got a, you got a market in 1982 when you were about 25 years of age that had a CAPE ratio of seven, you know, and you made, you made 16.6 or therefore or there, around there for about 18 years. You know, you, you quadrupled your money in 20 years. That is an unbelievable advantage over the next generation who were, I think it's Gen Xs, who were basically hitting 25 when the market was at 2,000 and the Cape Ratio was at 44. You can be the best bloody investor in the world, but boy, oh boy, it's hard to slog if the Cape Ratio is 44, you know, to make money. Whereas when the boomers 
had a lot of luck simply by the external circumstances where, as you mentioned, we had deregulation, we had privatisation, we, we had great opportunities, we could travel the world, we got um, the financialization, like there was speculation, you could borrow money. You know, before that, it was really hard to borrow because it was really strict. There was so much more freedom of movement. You know, you could travel the world for jobs. Education was free. So, you know, you go to university and it would basically cost you nothing. So all of those sorts of things add up where you don't really acknowledge, well, it's hard to weigh how much, you know, how lucky was I in life? Well, you know, you can't sort of go, oh, 62%. You, you just sort of go, oh, well, yes, I was lucky, but I worked hard and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So it's, a, it's an interesting sort of point. I mean, I, like you, I've had, you know, I think I've been relatively lucky in life all the way through, but it's hard to acknowledge it in a, in a sense of saying, well, what would I have been like if my luck had been different? You know, I nearly died when I was about 27 from an asthma attack. So, you know, you sort of look at it and go, well, I actually could have been dead. So, you know, it's just a, it, I think it's just an interesting thing that Buffett does often acknowledge about how lucky he's been through his life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think we've talked about this before and you just, you know, who knows what, you know, like the Sliding Doors movie, who knows how life might have been different. I, yeah. I think it's, um, you know, and having lived in a developing country, which is, I guess um, a nice way of saying a poor country. You know, you, you sometimes you know you do just uh, forget just how lucky we are in terms of you know not you know living in uh, you know a state like Queensland. You know, it really is a very prosperous and safe and desirable sort of place. And you know, when you think about all of the people who have ever lived, we must be in the top fraction of one percent of the most fortunate. But of course. You know, that's not human nature. We benchmark against each other to all too easily. I think, um, you know, on Buffett's journey, as you said, he, he was lucky to invest. And I've seen him say in videos, you know, there was times when he could pick up great companies with a price-earnings ratio of two, you know, in his early days. And but people just wouldn't buy, you know, because stocks were, you know, uh, were hated at that point in time. But I guess he's just evolved over time. And now these days there might be more volatility in the market because of the leverage that's around, but he just uses that to his advantage, uh, focusing on survivorship and buying the larger companies when they have those uh, drawdowns. So I suppose, you know, Buffett would just say, well, if you're just a smart investor and buy low um, and, and just continue compounding as you go forward and just make the most of the opportunities as they do, come around um but i think yeah the role of luck is an interesting one because you can't as you said you can't really quantify it and it's all relative anyway so i think um you know that is pretty much um the series for buffett i think on a um on a final question for you steve you know i guess we posed the question today can we all be like buffett and clearly no i mean there have been clones i suppose over time who've tried but uh I suppose in the end we're all unique and we we all have our own strengths and weaknesses. What do you think? Yeah, I I agree. The thing you can learn from Buffett, I think, is to find your own style. There's literally hundreds of ways to make money in the stock market, in property markets, in gambling, um, all of those sorts of things. So it's a matter of actually understanding what your own personality is like, coupling that with you know, probably simple stuff like hard work, and in this case it's things like 
reading a lot uh, will obviously help you. You know, I don't think um, I don't think you can read a lot of books and go, I've learned absolutely nothing, and in fact, it was negative for me. So, I think if you pursue a, a course of study, whether it be formal or informal, you'll probably end up being, you know, doing all right. Can you be Warren Buffett? I mean, I suppose the question is twofold. Do you want to be Warren Buffett? You know, he's obviously had a, a great life and stuff. I still think there's a bit of regrets with his uh, wife and children, but, you know, I have no idea or insight in on that. But I think in terms of an investor, the thing you can learn is, again, you know, like we mentioned throughout, which is that that ability to stay on a process that leads to successful outcomes. I suppose, can we be like Buffett? I'm not sure if it's the right question, but I think you get, if you if you read up and study Warren Buffett, I think you'll probably do better than most people. And if you can just be a little bit humble in terms of recognising the role of luck, then I think generally you'll probably end up doing all right. So we should invest in uh, some wristbands then. What would Warren do? <laughs> and uh, try and uh, I mean, I've always found watching his presentations and videos very useful to give you a sense of just that calm, rational way of viewing the world. So we'll put some books in the show notes. And thanks for joining everyone. And uh, we look forward to joining you next week when we'll be kicking off a new mini series. Cheers. Thanks. See you, Pete. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more, you can download a free chapter and extra bonuses from our new book, Low Rates, High Returns. Just visit www.lowrateshighreturns.com forward slash book to download your free copy. The things we've discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Stephen and I are both on LinkedIn and Twitter, so do reach out and connect with us. And finally, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Now take care and invest wisely. Cheers. Cheers.